0: Difficulty, adversity, tragedy are all unfortunate realities of life. As a matter of fact, trials are not only things that we experience, they're things that we're called to experience. And some of us are called to experience them more uh, than others. Just in this room alone, here are a few examples of the things that we've experienced. Death of a parent, child, sibling, spouse, um, those who have been victims of physical, emotional, sexual, and spiritual abuse, those who have family members that have been perpetrators of abuse, those who have experienced divorce. Infidelity, those who have struggled with infertility, those who have been through unexpected and protracted periods of physical or mental illness, chronic pain, postpartum depression, anxiety, and depression, those who have been caretakers of those with illnesses like ALS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, as well as both curable and terminal cancers, those who have wayward children and unsaved spouses or family members, those who have been rejected by family and friends due to your faith. And then on top of that, there are the everyday trials, the day-to-day ordinary trials that come with being men and women and boys and girls and fathers and mothers and single and married and young and old and employed and unemployed and renters and homeowners and neighbors and church members. So the question really isn't, will we experience trials? Right? They're going to be inevitable. We already have experienced them. We already are experiencing them. We, we are going to experience them. And as we're going to see in a minute, James says, when you meet trials of various kinds, he doesn't say if. We wish he would. The question we must ask is, how are we going to respond? How do we respond in the midst of the trials that are inevitable? And it's an important question for all of us to ask because we all know someone or know of someone who has experienced a particularly difficult trial or some kind of tragedy or some kind of evil has been perpetrated against them or against someone they love. Or it's someone, we we know of someone uh, or we know someone close to us who has experienced Trial after trial after trial, after, you know, just one after the other, seems to snowball, right? And they they can't come up for air. But their response has been to fall into sin uh, or to give up on God. To renounce their faith or maybe to use the term that seems to be in these days is deconstruct their faith. And what we need to know is how we can assure ourselves that we don't fall into that. Or how we might help those who are faced with that. How we might minister to those who are in the face of that. So they don't fall um, down that path. Our outline in these first 18 verses of James looks like this. We're going to look at two points. We're going to look at the trials that purify and then the temptation to sin. The trials that purify in verses 1 to 12 and the temptation to sin in verses 13. Father, by your spirit, would you, as I ask every week, I ask that you would grant power to the preaching of your word that you would grant us all eyes to, ear, uh, hear, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. Um, I ask that you would awaken our attention and that you would open our sorrows, that you would convict us and challenge us, but then you would come along and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel tonight. As always, I'm weak and needy for this task to which you've called me. And so I would pray that in these moments you would... Grant me uh, fervency and fluency and grace. Fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you tonight. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and for his church. Amen. Well, James begins his letter, you heard as Grant read and you hopefully have it in front of you. He begins verse 1 in typical New Testament fashion by introducing himself and introducing Uh, Those to whom he's writing. Uh, And while there is somewhat of a debate about who James is, uh, consensus is that he's not James of Zebedee and that he's not James, or he's not James, son of Zebedee, and not James, son of Alphaeus, but he's James, son of Mary. Um, That means he's Jesus's half brother, Uh, he is uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he's very prominent, he's a very prominent character in the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts 15. And the fact that he doesn't introduce himself or provide that information, other than just saying James, I mean he does, and we'll get to that in a minute, but he doesn't use those other identifiers, I find find that interesting. Um, I find that interesting because he, he could have name-dropped, but he chose not to. Um, he didn't pull rank. Um, it could have been due to the fact that he was well-known well enough on his own to not have to describe himself in that way. Um, it could have been, you know, he, he didn't, for whatever reason, he didn't feel the need to say, I'm Jesus's brother, and I'm Mary's son. And I think in some cases he may have been or in some cases he may have been simply identifying with those to whom he's writing. You see, it wasn't his pedigree, it wasn't his authority, or it wasn't his pedigree that gave him authority to write. It wasn't uh, his physical relationship with Jesus that earned his position or his platform, right? His spiritual relationship to Jesus was more important than his physical relationship with him. He was more than a blood brother, right? He was a spiritual brother. And he actually identifies himself as a slave or as a bondservant or as a a, a servant of Jesus who he believed, he writes, he says, who he believes was the anointed Messiah that was both God and Lord. And this is a very significant profession, confession of faith, because he himself had been a hindrance to Jesus early on in Jesus' ministry. And he hadn't come to faith until after the crucifixion and resurrection. And so to James, his identity as a son and as a brother and even as a leading elder in the church was all subordinate to his spiritual identity in Christ. And it seems likely that if his readers who were Jewish Christians and who were being persecuted and who had been dispersed and were on the run, if they were, if, if they were experiencing that persecution and had been dispersed because of their profession of faith, I think it's very likely that he's, in his profession, is actually identifying with them and showing that he himself is willing to put his life on the line right alongside them. And it's interesting, too, that he acquired the nickname James the Just due to his own striving for personal righteousness, his own encouragement of others to strive for righteousness. He had a zeal for the law. He had a love for the law. He had a desire to fulfill and obey the law to the point that fifty-nine. there are 59 commands in these 108 verses of this letter. Which, by the way, caused, caused Luther to call this the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He was even quoted as saying, compared to other epistles, it had nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. But I think as we read it, as we go through that over this, the next eight weeks, we're going to find it's just the opposite. In the words of one commentator, James subordinated his passion for the law to his greater passion for the gospel. He had a zeal for legal righteousness, but greater zeal for the grace of God. His goal was to promote a life consistent with faith in Christ, the Lord. He believed true heirs of the kingdom like, or live like friends of God. Genuine believers order their lives under the will and word of the Lord. Then, when they feel to, fail to meet the standard, they plead for grace. As he says in chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. That is the Gospel of James. So his goal in this letter is to encourage Jewish Christians in Christ who were being persecuted and had been dispersed for their faith, and he was encouraging them to remain in the faith and to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Now James, like Paul, you'll notice in verse 2, he jumps right in after the brief greetings. He didn't waste any time. He didn't mince any words. He was very concise. He was very matter of fact. Uh, He didn't sugarcoat things, he didn't attempt to be winsome, he had no time for nuance, which is all very popular today. And in verse 2, he just gets straight to the point, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's a command that deals with thoughts rather than emotions. He wasn't addressing how they should feel about their circumstances. He was addressing how they should think about their circumstances. And that's because joy isn't an an emotion. It's a state of mind and a state of being. Joy is, in the words of one writer, a settled contentment. Or it's a deep, steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God In the words of Pastor Kim Riddlebarger, joy is simply the knowledge that it is well with our souls despite our present circumstances. It may not be well with our bodies, he says. It may not be well with our job or with our particular circumstances, but because Jesus died for our sins and because he was raised for our justification, it is well with our souls. And when James said all joy, he was referring to this completeness, this fullness of intensity of joy. Not that their joy is all, not that joy is all that they should feel. In other words, he's not saying Christians should ignore the emotions that we experience in the midst of trials, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of suffering. He wasn't saying we should never feel sad or never feel angry or never feel fear or never feel uh, grief. He was saying we should experience, again, the, the fullness and intensity of joy despite our emotions in the midst of the circumstances that we face. I heard someone say one time, it's, it's really a call to jump up and do, jump jump up and down in triumph in the midst of our circumstances. And we'll hear why in a minute. we have to remember right this is well this is all reinforced by that first word it's all reinforced by the word count because he was telling them to be convinced and that their conviction should be decisive and settled right it should be firm so they should be firmly convinced and settled about their contentment they should be firm and settled in their thankful trust of the Lord, or in the Lord. They should be firmly convinced and settled that it is well with their souls in any trials that will inevitably come, no matter what they may be. And we have to remember, we think, boy, you're being insensitive, but, but let's think about, those, think about who he's talking to. Right? He is talking to those in the midst of persecution, the original readers, those in the midst of persecution, those that had been dispersed, they had lost their homes, they had lost their jobs. There was a good chance that they were experiencing poverty and significant oppression, not to mention always under this potential or facing the threat of physical harm and death. But fortunately, he didn't leave them, he doesn't leave us there, he doesn't leave us with the imperative or the command without some rationale or without some reasons. In verse 3, he wrote, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He said, if you're a student of life, Right? If you look around and, you can, and you, see, you can see and observe how life works, he says it's, it's obvious that you can count it all joy in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your trials, because the trials you experience, the trials that you are going through or will go through are being used by God to test your faith. Not to determine if you have faith or not, but to purify the faith that you have a big difference. You see, each and every trial puts faith to the test because it puts our endurance at risk. We never really know how firm our convictions are, how convinced we are of things, as long as we're untested. But when trials come, our weaknesses are identified. In Peter's words, in chapter 1 of his first letter, what the Lord is doing is testing the genuineness of of our faith, right? It's tested through fire of our trials, and the dross and impurities of our faith are brought to the surface, and they're skimmed off so that our faith is left stronger than it was before. So, we come out on the other end of our trials less weak, less fickle, and less erratic and more strong more consistent, more loyal, more trusting, and with greater endurance. And in verse 4, he describes the result. He wrote, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's not simply telling his readers, he's not simply telling us to let go and let God, as if our steadfastness is passive in some way, and that, and that we simply step back and, and allow our circumstances to unfold with the attitude of, well, what will be will be. Actually, he's saying the steadfastness is active. It's, it involves resolve on our part. It's been described by commentators as having staying power or heroic endurance. It's a, it's a steadfastness that's strong and active, and with each successive trial that we go through, weaknesses within our faith are revealed, they're burned away, and the result is a spiritual maturity. There's a spiritual maturity in the short-term, and then there's perfection in the long-term. Right? There's maturity in this lifetime and perfection in the life to come. Douglas Moo puts it this way, he says, the ultimate goal of trials that believers meet with fortitude and confidence in the Lord is not simply maturity, but perfecting. Of course, this goal is not one that we will reach in this life, it is ultimately an eschatological gift, something toward which Christians are constantly to strive with all their power, but which will not in fact be attained until the culmination of the new age of salvation. Unfortunately for those then and for us now, James doesn't simply lay out the imperative and the reason for the imperative or the rationale. He also provides the how-to or the means by which the imperative should be followed or obeyed. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea which is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Wisdom, James says, is necessary. And if we're going to persevere, in the midst of our trials, wisdom is necessary. Wisdom is necessary to count it all joy. Wisdom is necessary to let steadfastness have its full effect. Wisdom is necessary to mature if we're going to mature and strive for perfection. And that's because in the words of J.I. Packer, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. It is the practical side of moral goodness, and as such is found in its fullness only in God. So wisdom is the means by which we as Christians understand the Word of God, discern the will of God, uh, believe the purposes of God, and live in such a way that we receive the favor of God. It's all by wisdom. And James also makes it very clear that wisdom can be ours. We don't have it in and of ourselves, but it can be ours if we ask. And that's because God is a giving God. J.A. Motier puts it this way, when we come to God with our prayers, he never replies, oh, come back Tomorrow. Perhaps I will then be able to be the giving God again, but today I must occupy myself with being something else. No. Giving is not the whole truth, he says, but it is ceaselessly true. He is more than giving, but he is always giving. But he's not only giving, he gives generously and lavishly. His intent is to give. He's fully determined to give. He gives without reservation. He gives without hesitation. He's single-minded in His giving, and that's because it's His nature to give. He's determined to always give us what we need to please Him. And as a result, we should never, ever hesitate to ask he will never rebuke us or find fault in our asking or or find fault in our asking or uh, he will uh, not rebuke us for not already having what we need he knows better he wants us To consider it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. He wants us to mature and strive for perfection. So if we need wisdom to do that, to do what he wants and what he expects and we don't have it in and of ourselves, he will most assuredly give it to us when we ask. That's James's point. But James also says there's a condition. To receive it, we need to ask with faith, without doubting. Just as God is single-minded in His giving, He desires for us to be single-minded in our asking. He's not talking about the doubt that we just spent 18 months talking about, right? (laughs) He's not talking about that doubt that Luke wrote about. The, the reason for Luke writing his gospel was to, to, to assure us of our faith. We're not talking about that occasional doubt. He's talking about a consistency of faith over the long haul, right? He's, he's talking about a, a single mindedness in our cons- in consistency of belief and trust. Um, you know, for the single minded, it's present, but for the double minded, right there's inconsistency in belief and trust in the words of one commentator there's this consistent inconsistency among the double uh, double minded Right? they fluctuate between devotion to the world and devotion to Christ for the single minded that's not the case for the single minded there's a stability and a desire to commit as opposed to an instability and an inability to commit. There's a willingness on this part of the single-minded. There's an unwillingness on a part of the double-minded. And as I read this week, it's not about being two-faced. It's about facing both ways. And James says it cannot be. Particularly in regard to whether God will give us what we ask or not. I mean, let's think about it this way. If we ask in faith... We're asking with certainty that we want it. We're asking um, with wholehearted assurance that we will receive it. And we're asking in confidence that He desires to and will in fact give it. But if we we ask and we're double-minded in our asking and we're asking with doubt, we're undecided about whether or not we want it. We're not sure or we're unsure that we're going to receive it, and we lack confidence that He can and will give it. Ken Rudelbarger says, the key to asking in faith without doubting is not to look at ourselves, which is our tendency, but to look carefully at the track record of the one whom we are asking for wisdom. He goes on to say, when we consider that God foreordains everything that comes to pass, that He is all wisdom, and that Jesus is wisdom incarnate, and that God has kept each and every one of His promises, only then can we ask for wisdom that He has promised in faith without doubting. We look to Him. Well, then He comes along in verses 9 to 11 and gives us an example he wants, to, he wants to clarify the point. And he did so in a way that was relevant then and is very relevant now as well. Look at verse 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pr- pursuits. So he says, Here's an example. You who are poor and oppressed in the midst of your trial, you need to consider it all joy because your faith is being tested in the midst of this. Wisdom says that your hope is not in material wealth, it's in your spiritual wealth. Wisdom says that you may be physically bankrupt But you are rich beyond measure because your treasure is in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Wisdom says that you have an eternal inheritance awaiting for you in heaven being kept for you by God, to borrow Peter's words. So wisdom says, look, don't look at your circumstances. Look to your exaltation. Boast in how Christ has exalted you, raised you up, and seated you in heaven with him. And then he looks at the rich brother. And he says, make no mistake, your wealth is as much of a trial as poverty is to someone else. Wisdom says you cannot love both god and mammon. Wisdom says you need to make sure you haven't been lulled into thinking you don't have any spiritual needs because all of your physical needs are met. He says wisdom says you need to take stock in where your treasure is because it can disappear in a moment. Success is fleeting. So you need to stop boasting in your wealth and boast in your humiliation. You need to boast in the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt and that Christ was willing to rescue you from the depths of your despair. He took on flesh. He left his rightful place of the throne and took on flesh and dwelt among us He says, you would still be wallowing in the mud of your sin had he not condescended and lifted you up out of your miry clay. And he really, he could have used any type of comparison, really. Right? There could have been any number of choices because prosperity and adversity... Prosperity and I was going to say something else. I'm not going to say it. Prosperity and adversity are not visible signs of being blessed or cursed. Okay. Solomon said, "Prosperity and adversity both come from God, and are part of His providential purposes, through which through which He transforms and sanctifies those who are His more than other. The world's perspective." There appear to be those who are blessed more than others, and those who are cursed, and whose trials seem to be more in number and more severe, right? The world looks at those who are rich and says, they're blessed. They look at those who are poor and say, they're cursed. And that's reinforced on Christian television. I said it. But from God's perspective, each category, rich, poor, carries its own set of trials. Its own set of trials that God uses to purify our faith and must be met with wisdom that is available only if we ask. We all need it. When verse 12, he wraps up with his first point with a blessing to provide a little motivation. Um, He writes or wrote Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Right? He says, God's never promised to deliver you from your trials. He's never promised that you wouldn't experience trials during your earthly lives, but He has promised to reward you with eternal life, and that eternal life awaits those who endure. It's a gift. Eternal life is a gift that He gives to those that He's called according to His purposes, those He loves. He has offered that gift. Those who are Call, those who are being preserved are called to persevere. And we know from our study of Hebrews that we're all to run the race that's been set before us, our race of faith, and we're to run in such a way, right? In Paul's words in Corinthians, we're to run that, we're to run that race to, to win the prize, Well, James not only knows the right responses to our trials, he also knows the wrong ways, right? There's a right way and a wrong way, And when, because when trials come, it's possible to take responsibility for our, ourselves and, and, and our active steadfastness and our endurance, but it's also possible to doubt and to blame God in the midst of those times. Look at verse 13. He says, let no one who is tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, James purposefully uses uh, the word translated as trials in verse 2 and the word translated tempted in verse 13 uh, on purpose because uh, they're related They're related very closely. And the first speaks of that which is outward and circumstantial. And the second deals with our inner enticements. And in choosing them and doing so, what he's doing is communicating something very significant. He's communicating and making the point that the same trial that can be an opportunity to move forward is also an opportunity to shrink back. He says, the same trial that can simultaneously be a test that leads to endurance and maturity can also be a temptation that leads to sin and death. Again, in the words of Mr. Maltier, he says, every circumstance we meet, therefore, requires a decision. We will persevere and go with God or... We will listen to the voice which suggests the easy way of disobedience and disloyalty. Notice he says the easy way is disobedience and disloyalty, not going and persevering with God. That means every trial, whether illness, whether death, poverty, oppression, abuse, or whatever it may be, can be a test to be endured Or a temptation to question God's sovereignty and His providence and His love and His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His care and His justice. And then the temptations themselves become tests that must be overcome. But James is also clear that while God uses trials to strengthen our faith, He never, ever in the words of Dr. Mu, seeks to induce sin and destroy our faith, never. Because due to his holiness and goodness, it is not only impossible for him to be tempted, it is also impossible for him to will or to act or to be motivated in any way that would cause spiritual harm to his children. It's against his character. He's not going to harm them spiritually in any way. When trials come, His desire is for us to pass the test and to receive the blessings that He's promised to give us. That is His desire. But if we fail the test, if we fall into temptation and sin, the blame, brothers and sisters, the blame is not His, it's ours. Look at verse 14. Each person, but, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says the real source of our temptation is within us due to our sin nature. We all have desires for the wrong things. We all desire those things that God has said no to. We also have intense longings for the right things. We, at times, over-desire the gifts that God has given us and desire the gifts more than we desire the giver. And in some cases, what tempts one person may tempt another, but what tempts one person may not tempt the other. But in every case... James says those desires lure and entice us like magnets. Actually, he uses a a fishing metaphor and says it's like bait on a hook, and the fish takes the bait, and the hook ends up in his lip, and then he's reeled in and filleted for dinner. And his point is that we have thoughts and we have desires that we may consider casual, But when we dwell on them, and when they go unchecked, and when they're allowed to fester and grow, what's minor becomes major, and the sinful desires become sinful actions. And when we take the bait... We take the bait, and those sinful actions, when we fail to repent of them and we fail to mortify them, they lead to spiritual death. His point is that there are blatant in-your-face temptations, right, and we should flee from them, but there are also seemingly small and harmless temptations that we entertain over time on a repeated basis and they will have the same devastating effect if we do not flee in his use of the procreative process i mean it's it's not only purposeful it's ingenious right once the process begins there is an inevitable result once sin is conceived It leads to death. Well, in verse 16, James moves from who God isn't, a tempter, to who God is, a giver, again. He says, Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says, stop being deceived. Really, the language could be read as stop deceiving yourselves. You're wandering around in this forest of lies. God isn't a tempter, he's a giver. And he gives constantly. He gives lavishly. He does not change from day to day. He's consistent. He gives wisdom. He gives the spirit. And brothers and sisters, He has given us our salvation through the Word of God. While temptation leads to sin and death, the gospel leads to life. I mean, let's just think logically. He hasn't redeemed us to then simply turn around and make a shipwreck of our faith and allow us to die. He's redeemed us, and he therefore will give us the wisdom we need to endure the trials that we encounter on a regular basis. He will finish what he started. Again, to quote Paul, he who began a good work in you and in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful, even when we are faithless. He is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Now, when I've been thinking about this all weekend, I've been thinking about three groups. Um, one group I've been thinking about are those that um, aren't in a particular trial right now. I, I was going to say that, that haven't experienced one, but we all have, right? We said that at the beginning. So you're not, maybe not in a particular trial right now. And so I'm hoping that this is helpful when you are. The second group are those who are in the middle of them right now, one or another, and I'm hopeful that this will be helpful to you where you are. And then I'm also hoping that kind of the larger group would be all of us at one time. I'm I'm hopeful that this will be helpful for all of us who have the opportunity to minister to someone else when, uh, you know, who are in particular trials. They experience. So there's a a when, a where, and a who to this. And what I thought I'd do that I'm hoping is best is that I just want to summarize everything that we've just covered in the last several minutes. Um, Just the best we could just be, again, as succinct as James, maybe. Again, the question isn't. Will we experience trials? It's when we, when when will we? Um, And the answer that we've seen is it's it's a matter of perspective. Okay, Um, it's not a denial. It's not an avoidance of our emotions, but a change of perspective in the midst of them. Uh, We need to again we need to feel the, the anger and the sadness and the grief and the fear and the other sundry emotions right that come with trials. We can't even list them all. But in the midst of those, right, we need to simultaneously maintain our deep and steady trust in God that makes it well with our souls despite our circumstances. John Wayne once said that life is hard and life is harder when you're stupid. But life is hardest due to our sin. There's some truth to what John said, but life is hardest because of our sin. But thanks be to God that in ways you and I can't fully understand because His ways are not our ways, He is able in the midst of those trials to use them to strengthen your faith and to sanctify you and to conform you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that only He can do. And to help us in that change of perspective, James says pray. Pray for wisdom. Brothers and sisters, it's not easy, but it's simple. We must pray. And we must pray in faith without doubt, because it's only by the wisdom of God that we will come to a place of knowing and understanding that God is not in the business of tempting His children. But instead, He is generous, He is single-minded in His giving, and He has given and does give every good and perfect gift, period. Period. because He has saved us through the gospel, because He has granted us both faith and repentance, we can be confident that every trial, every trial we encounter is, in fact, purposeful. And He is using it. What He has begun, He will finish. And we know that because God has promised to do so. We're trusting Him that He is a God of His Word. He cannot lie. And remember, the only way that we can ask without doubting is to stop looking at ourselves and look to Christ. Why? Because Christ is the good and perfect gift that has been given to us like no other. And He Himself is wisdom incarnate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word, this word from you with faith and love. Enable us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name. Amen.